Now on Radio Italia Uno, it's time to change the world with Matt McQuinley. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We focus on changing the world for the better by taking personal responsibility, canceling cancel culture, discussing and listening to each other on topics like leadership, cultural trends, business, history, and more. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Right now on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hello and welcome to Change the World with Matt McQuinley. Here in South Australia, we're doing our show via phone because we're in lockdown due to COVID-19 restrictions. But luckily, we are continuing our third session on our series on policing. If you missed the last two sessions and our eight-part series on leadership, I urge you to check it out on our podcast, wherever you hear podcasts, Change the World with Matt McQuinley, M-A-T-T-M-C-Q-U-I-N-L-E-Y. We have on the phone today, Derek McManus, who is a sniper, special ops diver, counter-terrorist operative with the elite star group, Special Tasks and Rescue Force in the South Australia Police Department. During a high-risk arrest, he was shot 14 times in five seconds by a high-powered rifle. And because this situation could not be reached, to be given medical attention for over three hours. After his full recovery, two and a half years later, he returned to the police force on full active duty and continued in law enforcement for another 24 years until his retirement in 2018, finishing up a 42-year career in law enforcement. He now runs a public speaking training company called the Center for Human Durability. You can look into utilizing his services for your organization on his website, DerekMcManus.com. That's D-E-R-R-I-C-K-M-C-M-A-N-U-S.com. We also have on the phone retired police sergeant from Chicagoland, Marshall McQuinley, my father, full disclosure. He retained the rank of sergeant in his 26-year career. His assignments included two and a half years in a gang task force, two and a half years in a domestic violence unit, six years as a field training officer, four years in the juvenile department, and 10 years in patrol. In the last two sessions, we discussed the fact that only 48% of Americans and 56% of Australians view the police positively. We looked and talked about some of the ways that the police and the community can work together because they both want the same thing, safety and security for the families. We discussed Sir Robert Peel's nine principles of policing that were written in 1829. Sir Robert Peel is known as the father of modern day policing and the founder of the London Metro Police Department. These nine principles boil down to three key ideas, in my opinion, which are that Successful police departments are not about punishing, they're about preventing. They're not about making high volume of arrests, they're about having low crime rates. The key to prevent crime is public support, getting through the idea that all citizens share responsibility for preventing crime, that we're all junior members of the police and that the public wanna be part of this effort because they trust the police. How do the police earn this trust? Well, they do it by respecting the community and building a reputation, just like we do as business people. And they do this by applying the laws impartially to everyone, by caring about the community and only using force 
as a last result. We discussed the broken windows theory as well. That's been used very effectively in the United States, which basically states that if a community shows respect for itself, crime will go down. If they see a broken window, they fix it right away. If they see graffiti, they clean it right away. That way the criminals know that this community has respect for itself and they'll move on. We also discussed the fact that you can use your environment to lower the chance of opportunistic crimes occurring in your community. And finally, we discussed what I think is the crazy movement called defund the police. I believe there are straight lines that can be drawn from the riots in Portland, Minneapolis, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, etc., and the explosion of crime in the United States. It's also led to the Ferguson effect, where in a recent USA Today poll of 1,200 law enforcement officers, 72% of them said they were less likely to stop or investigate suspicious activities by an African-American or a person of color because they were afraid of being called racist. These attitudes have also led to new laws and attitudes which, in my lay opinion, are in direct opposition to common sense, much less the broken windows theory, like the new laws in California, like Proposition 47, where shoplifting crimes under $950 in value are considered a misdemeanor and are not prosecuted. The San Francisco Attorney General is actually the son of two weather underground members who were imprisoned in 1981 for an armored car heist where two police officers and a security guard were killed. The night of his election, one of the city lawmakers in the crowd of his rally started out a F-U-P-O-A chant. He has been quoted as saying, we will not prosecute quality of life crimes such as public camping, offering or soliciting sex, public urination, blocking the sidewalk, etc. As a result, murder is up in the United States. In Portland, up 92%. Philadelphia, 40%. Seattle, 55%. Phoenix, 44%. Minneapolis, 71%. Milwaukee, 96%. Chicago, 50%. LA County, 56%. New York, 40%. And in the first three months of 2021, there's an 18% rise over the previous year. Cops are retiring in droves because of these attitudes. In New York City, 72% increase in retirements. In the Chicago Police Department in 2020, it was up 30%. In this year, it's up an additional 15%. 20% of all police in Minneapolis retired in 2020. In another poll in September 2019, conducted by the International Association of the Chiefs of Police, 78% of law enforcement agencies said they have difficulty finding qualified candidates. That goes across state, local, federal, and tribal police departments. 65% of them said they have too few applicants to fill the positions. 75% say it was harder than it was five years ago to recruit. 50% of them said they have had to lower standards and, or change policies. 25% said they have to eliminate services and units and positions because they do not have enough staff. And that's where I'd like to start today with our challenge on recruiting. Derek, would you like to give us some feedback on that? 
Um, the world is changing. You know, recruiting is always going to be a, um, a changing thing. In South Australia, we're actually focusing on recruiting a lot more female, trying to get a 50-50 split in females, and this has lifted the number of recruits. And I can't articulate exactly why it has, but that's certainly one thing that just springs to mind on the back of what you've just suggested. Recruiting in the U.S. has been a very difficult process to maintain. The uh, recruitment, as you mentioned, Matt, some of the departments and uh, locales have reduced requirements and reduced testing scores and things like that to enable more people to be hired onto the job. I don't know that that is such a good thing because at some point in time, even after they're hired on, still do a, a considerable amount of training just to be just to be able to get to the requirements. Are we hiring people that are eventually not going to make it through the training program? You know, it, this is a, it, it's a real dichotomy as to how we're going to solve this problem or even address it. And again, if you go back, if you go back to the idea of you want to reach out to the community and have support, if you're lowering the standards of the people coming in, more likely to make a mistake that's going to negatively impact on public support, I would think, as well. I mean, I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I thought about being a cop, but I knew I didn't have the temperament. I couldn't do it. One of the things that we've got to remember is that sometimes we lower the standards, which is never a good thing. Sometimes we rationalize the standards, and that's a good thing. Certainly in my section of Star Group, when the standards were set, when I applied to become a member of Star Group, they were extremely high and very, very demanding, and only a certain caliber of person was able to pass. They have moderated the standards now to make it more job applicable and this is police department across the board the police department has adjusted those standards uh, such as height ethnicity and gender and, and all sorts of things those things are a good thing when we change the standards to lower the standards to make sure we get lots of people in who may not be able to do the job as marshall has uh, alluded to you're right the people coming in are not going to be able to do the job to the standard required the public are going to get a very poor impression of the police department as a result, and the relationship between police and the public will break down. But if it's just an adjustment to make it more fairer or make it more job applicable, make it more job applicable is probably the better term to use. That's a good thing. Trying to make it more palatable to not only the citizenry, but all the applicants. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any ideas on what we can do to help recruiting? What do you think can be done to attract higher quality candidates? Well, that's a uh, an age-old question. I'm not sure that anybody's come up with the answer at the moment. Mm. I know that at the moment in South Australia, we've got lots of people applying so we can be a little bit choosy. But there was a period there where we weren't getting a lot of people applying. And we had to go to the, U the UK and recruit police officers who are already qualified as police officers and bring them to South Australia. Uh, and I know some of the other states in Australia have done that as well. And, and that was a good thing. We've got people who are already assessed as being qualified and worthy of being police officers and bringing them in. Exactly what's going to change it in South Australia again, I don't know. I don't mean to throw a little bit of petrol on the fire here, but but you I will noticed when, when I was looking at the recruiting standards for South Australian police and police around Australia, that they actively do recruit people from New Zealand and England. Yep. I'm wondering why the, why they're not interested in recruiting people from the United States or Canada. 
is there a difference in philosophy or training that, and I'm not trying to start a disagreement here or anything, but <laughs> I'm just, I was curious about that when I read it. Is there a reason why? I, I don't know what the policy is. Mine would be purely Derek's opinion. I don't know what the, the real rationale behind it is, and there could be something very valid. Derek's opinion is that our roots, the Australian roots, go back to the UK, and so that's our, our closest link. There would be absolutely nothing wrong, in my opinion, of recruiting from anywhere in the world. People are meeting the standard, then bring them in. No, I was just wondering if there's a difference in training or philosophy between Australian police department and American police departments. Uh, um, I don't know of any. We do firearms training and when we bring in new weapons or we want to upskill, we go to the US because there's a lot of experts in the US. We bring the US out to South Australia and I don't know whether they are actual police officers or just training officers for firearms, but we certainly go to the US there. So there's no cultural difference per se. And as I say, I don't know why they just go New Zealand, UK. It's just okay. Derek's opinion. Okay. I was just curious. With that, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Radio Italia Uno is inviting you to our very special once-a-year gala night on Saturday evening, the 28th of August, at the Marquee Club in Paradise. Tickets are $70, which includes a magnificent four-course meal, entertainment by Mumbo Italiano, and a spectacular floor show. Radio Italia Uno prides itself on inclusivity, warmth, friendship and community. And what better way to celebrate than to attend this annual event? Simply call the station to book at 8212-3177. Radio Italia Uno's Gala Night, August the 28th. The surprises never end. Looking for a new coffee machine for your home or workplace? Look no further than Fine Choice Coffee Solutions, your experts in all things coffee. Why not come in for a chat and a special coffee tasting? You'll find us at 264 Gilbert Street in the city. Mention Radio Italia Uno and you will receive a free 250 gram bag of freshly roasted coffee beans. You can also shop online at www.fccoffee.com.au where you'll find our large range of premium roasted coffee beans, coffee machines, accessories, hot chocolates, teas and lots, lots more. I'm Danielle from Fine Choice Coffee Solutions, your one-stop shop for all things caffeine. I'm Anna Faruja of Chapel Funerals. My role as a funeral director is to guide you through the emotional process of saying goodbye to someone you love. I'm here to help you make all the necessary arrangements so that you and your family may have peace of mind and time to remember and celebrate the life of the person you've lost. When the time comes, I'm here for you. So please call me, Anna Faruja, at Chapel Funerals on 81825100. Hi, this is David Heath and I'm excited to be bringing my program Soundtrack of Your Life to Radio Italia Uno. Join me Friday nights at 7 for interesting guests, some great music and plenty of fun. It's the best way to kick off the weekend. Soundtrack of Your Life, Friday nights from 7 until 9 on Radio Italia Uno 87.6 FM. 
piace la musica? Hai voglia di metterti in gioco? Entusiasmo e personalità non ti mancano? Radio Italia 1 sta cercando te. Chiama l'82 123177 e anche tu avrai la possibilità di entrare a far parte del nostro team. Radio Italia 1, diamo voce alla tua voce. Radio Italia 1 You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hello and welcome back to Change the World with Matt McQuinley. In the last session, we left off discussing recruiting of police in Australia and America. And it struck me, and as we were talking over the break, that if you have to go overseas <laughs> to find recruits to New Zealand or England, That, show, that shows a problem in recruiting. And we talked in our first session about that currently about 53% of police on the job in the United States are not Caucasian. So it seems like a good job has been done so far of making the police force reflect the community, but it seems like it's getting more and more challenging. Any thoughts about that, Sergeant McQuinley? Yeah, it's to the extremes of other nations and other provinces to uh, look for qualified candidates. Then we're kind of, it just shows how difficult that it is, I suppose, to uh, find good qualified candidates when uh, the incentives for becoming a, a police officer, a law enforcement officer, have uh, uh, dwindled. And I don't know that financial incentives are the way to go about this, because then we would be basically buying policing. And I don't know that that would be a, a, a positive thing either. My thought is that if we have to uh, go out of state or even out of country to recruit uh, qualified candidates, reflect the community that we are policing. How does a person from a foreign state identify with the person he or she is policing, providing the service to, reflect that theory that our department should uh, mirror the community that we are policing? Don't know what the incentives would be, but I would hate to think that uh, we'd have to uh, increase financial incentives because then it would be almost as if we were buying law enforcement officers. Anything else you'd like to add to that, Derek? Yeah, I, I actually have no problems going outside of state, outside of the country to bring people in. So long as they have the same ethos as we have, they pass our standards here when we take them through that recruiting process. Certainly there are some countries which would have different standards of public interaction than what we do. I have interacted with um, South Africans in our community And they have a direct fear of the police in South Africa because there is corruption. And when we start interacting with them, they are expecting the same again. So I would have some reservations about bringing in just willy-nilly anybody from South Africa. However, if we get a South African coming to Australia and they pass our recruiting standards they have, they, and they pass all that we require, bring them in, bring them in. It's cross-cultural, it's sensational, uh, and they may have better skills to be able to deal with their own cultures as well. Yeah. That's the same kind of problem that we have with our southern neighbors here. Mexico and Latin America, uh, the police there are just rife with corruption. We try to uh, recruit from there. I can't imagine why we would, we would want to recruit from there because of the the uh, reputation that those countries and those agencies have. Yeah, and, and going on 
just the reputation of the overall policing community in those other countries. There would be reluctance to recruit from them. Um, however, if we if we look at it on an individual basis, there's got to be people in there who are there for the right reason, and if we can identify them, bring them in, not a problem at all. That might be the reason why the person is trying to leave, because they actually were idealistic when they joined, and then they see the situation and they're not happy, but they still want to affect the change. Yeah. Or it could be they think they can steal more in Australia or America. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> but I mean, I think it's, it's like anything. You got to try to take it, take the individual over the, you know, look at each individual as an individual. Yeah, know? absolutely. Because there's. You can all, you know. You know, but uh, because there are certainly, South, you know, my, my example was from South Africa. There are certainly South Africans who are operating extremely well uh, within the police department. In fact, there's a guy who came from Namibia. Uh, he was not a police officer when he came in, but he was born in Namibia, grew up in Nam Namibia, uh, which is uh, Eastern Africa, I believe. Sorry, Western Africa. And he's in the police department, exceptional police officer, went into star group, exceptional star group officer. So it's got to be an individual. The, the, the policing of the country may have a bad reputation, but if we can identify individuals which are of acceptable standard, bring them in. But, of course, if you're going to use your advertising dollars, you should use it where you think you can get the best candidates. Yeah, absolutely. Which may not be police departments that are rife with corruption, of course. You know. Correct. Okay, well, let's move on to, I want to talk a little bit about Proposition 47, which, Derek, you, you might may, might be familiar with, you might not, but uh, California, our largest, most populous state in, in the United States, has passed a law that makes uh, shoplifting less than $950 a misdemeanor, so it's not actively prosecuted. And the attorney general of San Francisco, for example, ran on a policy of he would not prosecute what he calls quality of life crimes, which is kind of in direct violation of the broken windows theory that we talked about in the last session. And of course, in anything, I think we need to use our common sense. Anytime the law is applied completely black and white, that might be a recipe for tyranny and injustice. But there definitely should be standards. And I'd like to talk to you guys a little bit about that. So first of all, what's, what's your feedback on it, Sergeant McQuinley, since you're there in the United States? I can't imagine what the legislature was thinking when they passed that law. It only increases cost to the consumer. The ones that pay. Pardon? The ones that pay it increases. It increases the cost for the ones that pay. Right, right, right. And severely limits policing abilities, the officers' abilities to uh, to police. And why would the legislature do something like this unless it had something to do with a lack of policing or, or in response to this uh, defund the police type thing? Proposition 47 in California makes no sense to me on so many different levels. The uh, it, It's costing the... Uh, the company, the businesses, it's costing the consumer who have that does pay because the prices are going to go up. It severely handcuffs the police departments and, and makes policing in that community look not only inefficient, but also uh, makes it look as if we are uh, in on the deal. So this makes no sense to me whatsoever. Unless they're trying to say that this is because we don't have the funds to hire more police officers or we're continuing this defund the police program, 
I don't understand what's going on over there, and I, I don't I don't get it. I, I so many of my peers here have said uh, they don't understand it either, and it sounds foolish to them. Well, it's it's it also I mean something that I never thought of until you just were speaking was, and don't take this the wrong way, it makes police look like fools, like a joke. Exactly. That, I mean, really. I mean, if you expect, I mean, how how are you supposed to diffuse a situation? A dangerous situation when people think they can walk in, take a thousand less, a little bit less than a thousand dollars worth of stuff, and you're not going to do anything. Well, you have no authority. So right. why would they take anything you say seriously? Which of course is going to result in the situation escalating and more things that are going to make police look bad because force won't be necessary at some yeah, point. Right. It, it undermines policing authorities. I agree with you. If I understand it rightly, when you described it to us during the break, Proposition 47 uh, also uh, includes uh, not prosecuting public urination, not prosecuting prostitution and other things like that. Is that correct, Matt? That's correct. Yeah, they will not prosecute that, like homeless camping out, things like that. But again, I mean, businesses, for example, Walgreens, I was reading, just closed multiple stores in San Francisco. Yeah, because obviously they can't turn a profit when they're losing that much stock. Yeah, so so Proposition Forty Seven, the parts of it not prosecuting public urination for homeless people, homeless people camping out. That I can understand because it is a real problem, and as we discussed, maybe we should address that problem a different way and provide better sanitation where homeless people are able to go and urinate appropriately or as in a standard that we believe is correct. Prostitution, I think that should be policed a different way anyway. Decriminalising that makes sense to me. But the one about lowering the offence rate to anything under $950 won't be actively prosecuted. I cannot get my head around that at all. There's a couple of different ways of looking at it. The, The man who proposed it was elected into office, saying that that's what he was going to do. So are we actually reflecting public opinion? because he was elected in, so the public was supporting him at the time. I can't get my head around that either. I, I don't know why they would. But these are the sort of things, in my opinion, that lead to let's defund the police. Well, they're not doing a proactive job. They're not doing the job that we would like them to. People are able to walk out of here, steal whatever they want, so long as it's under $1,000. And does this break down the relationship between police and the public? And further fuel things like defund the police. I think the defund the police is more around police being overly physical and using excessive force, but this would certainly break down the relationships as well. Well, yeah, of course, it's it's playing to the politics. It, you know, I, I think that they think the police movements about politics. Yeah, it's, it comes down to politics. Yeah. You know, because that's the popular thing is defunding the police. It's popular to be anti-cop. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't see how it's helping anybody out to allow people to steal less than a thousand bucks. <laughs> I mean, what's... Yeah. One of, the, um, one of the things that runs through my mind is that I know that the court system here in South Australia gets clogged because we are pushing through many, so many things through the courts. We don't have a a good enough court system to be able to manage it. Do we try and just throw more money and resources into the court system and bolster that? Or do we find a different way of doing our policing and our prosecution? 
doing our policing and prosecution in a different way is a good thing if it's proactive and it's positive for the public as well as still going to deter crime. But this not prosecuting anything under $950, I, I can't understand the logic in that at all. Well, Derek, as always, makes some great points. We're going to pick that up in a few minutes after a word from our sponsors. Yo, ciao, Armando Paradiso from Unique Stone, delivering quality stone tops to South Australia for over 20 years. Granite, marble, Caesar Stone, Unique Stone, granito, marmo, Caesar Stone, Unique Stone. Thinking stone bench tops to your kitchen, bathroom, or furniture? Unique Stone at Jacobson Crescent, Holden Hill. Call us now, 8266-2280. Unique Stone, we won't be beaten. Come on, che stai facendo? Yo, chiama adesso. O'Brien Electrical Adelaide, your local electrical electrician. Service and responsiveness for locally owned and operated businesses, their priority. 263 Sturt Street in the city, right alongside of Radio Italia Uno. Give them a call and speak with their friendly staff. Their number 1300 051 482. Lo sapevi che l'82% delle persone richiama più facilmente il nome di un'azienda vedendolo scritto su carta che in una pubblicità sui social media? Continua a valorizzare i metodi più tradizionali, toccare e tenere nelle proprie mani biglietti da visita, calendari promozionali, cataloghi. Maria Studio Printing è il tuo partner creativo di stampa e di marketing ideale. Si occupano di graphic design, sviluppo web, gestione di stampa, routing CNC e 3D carving, fotografia commerciale e riprese, offrendo consegne nello stesso giorno o entro tre giorni lavorativi. Maria Studio Printing può portare alla luce i tuoi progetti e crescere la tua impresa è facile. Per saperne di più, chiama l'8352-1268. Join me, Ron Fiedler and Karen Fiedler each Saturday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. for Talking Real Estate, your guide to real estate in Adelaide and South Australia. We'll bring you the latest local real estate news, interviews, tips and advice from property experts, plus report on the Italian property market and let you know about the week's open homes and upcoming auctions. And don't forget, I'll be bringing you my open home of the week. On Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM, Talking Real Estate, every Saturday morning from 9 till 10am. Be in the know with Adelaide's local real estate show. Radio Italia Uno, sito internet www.italiauno.com.au Seguici anche sulla nostra pagina Facebook e Instagram. Radio Italia Uno You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hello and welcome back to Change the World with Matt McQuinley. In the last session, Derek McManus, 42-year veteran of the Elite Star Group in South Australia Police Department, was making a great point about Proposition 47, which has decriminalized, for lack of a better term, several quality-of-life crimes. His point, if I may, and correct me if I misunderstand, is that there are some things in it that make sense. For example, Derek believes that public urination shouldn't be prosecuted. He, in his opinion, 
Same with prostitution. And I think there may be some value in, I, I think there's a middle line myself as a layman. For example, if you're going to prosecute public urination, I mean, it's only if in a situation where somebody has tried to kind of hide themselves while they're relieving themselves. You know, if, then don't prosecute that. But obviously, if somebody is doing it in a way that's flaunting it, then that's obviously something that shouldn't be acceptable. Would you like to expand on the points you were making, Derek? Um, yeah, the um, the idea of changing our policing, the way we police and how we prosecute is always attractive to me. This is preventative policing rather than policing to force people to do things. If public urination is a problem because people are homeless, they don't have facilities of their own, then maybe we should find a way to provide facilities for them or another way around that rather than just going, you're not allowed to and we are going to punish you every time. Let's find a way of alleviating it. It's a public problem. It's not down to the individuals being able to walk three, four, five miles, whatever it might be, kilometres here in South Australia. But, you know, there's got to be another way around it. Prostitution, that's a, a whole other topic to discuss, but I think that should be legalised a way of managing it rather than trying to make it illegal. There's a whole philosophy behind that, but I, I think the prostitution bit should be legalised anyway. But lowering the prosecution levels for theft to under $950 is not going to be actively prosecuted. I'd like to know more about what not actively prosecuted means, but from what you're telling me, it's having an impact on the community in that the owners of businesses are closing down. I'm sure you, I think you've got an example to tell us about that. The public are losing faith in the police because they believe the police are not doing their job. However, as police officers, we are just enforcing the laws as we are told to enforce them by those in uh, authority to to legislate. So it, it could be causing some massive problems for police-public relationships and could throw fuel on the fire for the defund the police type movements. Sergeant McClinley, would you have anything to add? I'm in uh, agreement with most of what uh, Derek had to say there, the uh decriminalization of, of so many of the things in, in uh, Proposition 47 out there in California it makes no sense. I, I don't understand what they're doing unless it's got something to do with defund the police program that seems to be catching fire to the point that the police are being punished, actually, for trying to do their jobs because of some just a few of the uh, bad apples in the barrel that are... Uh, uh, getting all the press and getting all the uh, attention. I have a couple quick comments. I, I, I personally, I mean, I obviously respect your opinion and uh, both of you guys' opinion. And my opinion is just one of a layman. I, I, I don't really buy into making prostitution legal. Um, I know that that's a trend. That's the case in, you know, in the case in in a lot of places in America, I can see why managing it better, a different way is, you know, making it legal and then managing it has benefits. But morally, I just can't make that jump myself. But what I find really challenging about Proposition 47, in, in my mind, is that I think it shows a lack of respect 
than the politicians for their own constituents. I think it's insulting to their constituents that they really, because they're taking a few people that are saying defund the police, that they really believe their constituents want less safety, less security. They want the ability to go out and rob $950 worth of products without any ramifications. And I just find it insulting and degrading. It shows lack of belief, lack of leadership, belief in the people that they're leading. That's my opinion on it, but that's for whatever that's worth, if anything. One of my general approaches in life is that understanding that there are some things that we don't understand and they upset us because of our frame of reference. But I always go back to, let's go and talk to the person who's making that decision or taking that action and find out why. What's their reason why? Because sometimes if we understand their perspective, then we're more likely to go, oh, okay, I understand, I get it now. You still may not agree with it, but you understand why they've done it. Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, have a number first, Yeah, seek first to understand and not be understood. And Sorry then, to, and then to be understood, yeah. I try to live that way myself, but I just can't get this far on this particular topic. I, I, but that's very, very wise. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no. I, I was finished. You, you came in right at the right time. No, that, it's very wise and, and exactly what should be done. But I just do think sometimes there are lines. There are videos in the United States of people leisurely walking in with shopping carts, loading it up full of 900. I mean, I guess they're taking a calculator with them. I don't know. <laughs> but they're adding it up to make sure it's less than a thousand bucks and walking out. I mean, I, I just, and nobody's stopping them. And heading a little bit like that in Australia, as a business owner, I've had some similar experiences. And I, I was talking to a security guard at our, a shopping center here in South Australia who said the same thing, that certain types of people will come in with a shopping cart or a, a, a bag, load it up, walk out, and know there's nothing that can be done because the security guards can't stop them. And it's just not on the top of the police's to-do list. And I think that comes back, I'm sorry I'm, I'm taking too much time here, but it comes back to the point, the excellent point Derek was making before is, Maybe it's not only a policing problem, it's a court system problem. Not yeah. having the, the infrastructure to prosecute crimes the way they should be prosecuted. Yeah, and what I was saying is that uh, the court system is getting clogged and they are trying to, maybe, try, maybe, 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 this is Derek's opinion, Derek's assumption, they are maybe trying to find a way to have less people going through the court but still manage the system in a way that the public find acceptable. It's just finding that balance. And and this is, you know, I guess. Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to do some more research into well, Proposition 47. That is something that they're trying to that, – that is part of their reasoning. Also, the fact that they're letting – been lowering uh, – letting a lot of people out of prison. They've been lower a lot of the mandatory sentencing, you know. But in America, violent crime was plummeting from 1990 – to just recently and now with this defund the movement police it's heading in in the wrong direction again these are big questions obviously yeah you have any feedback sergeant mcquinley i agree with some of the the stuff that uh derek was saying uh but like you i have a hard time getting behind the uh decriminalization of prostitution the uh idea behind the shoplifting thing wouldn't it be the ultimate insult to have someone take it up to the register and Okay, does this come up to $950? Okay, I can, okay. 
that'll be $948.22. No thanks. And just walk out with the stuff. I'm sure that <laughs> happened. I'm yeah, sure you were happened. talking about them carrying a calculator. Why do they have to carry a calculator when they've got the register right there at the exit? <laughs> <laughs> this makes you know, I, I don't mean to make light of it. Get immediately. I don't mean mean to make light of it, but I mean for crying out loud, how far is, are we going to go with decriminalization? It reduces the officer's ability to uh, do his or her job, and it makes them look like they're part of the bad guy system to the community that they're policing. I don't get it. Okay. Well, I think we've all pretty much agreed that, uh, you know, there may be some positives in there, but in Proposition 47, but some of it may be completely misguided. Is that our consensus? Correct. Yep. Totally agree. That's my vote. We talked a little bit about before the whole defunding the police program idea. They used to call it in the Obama years, militarization of police police who shouldn't have these kind of weapons, these kind of tactics, this kind of ability. And as a member of the STAR group, that was pretty much your area of expertise, Derek, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what do you think about that whole movement that, I mean, I don't know if that's spread to Australian shores yet, but in the United States, they wanted to take away those special abilities like the troop carrier type things and certain kinds of body armor and certain kinds of weapons and crowd control devices. No, that that hasn't come into Australia at all. Um, We still have good funding for our police and good funding for uh, the weapons that we use. Less than lethal is certainly the preference. Uh, We're doing as much research into less than lethal as we possibly can. But where necessary, we we still have uh, other weapons available to us. Hmm. What do you think about the demilitarization of police, for a lack of a better term, the movement that was in the United States? Uh, yeah, I, I can understand why we would uh, want to take some of the uh, weaponry away from the uh, police departments. I, I can't imagine why we would need mobile missile launchers and mines that we drop into the tube and uh, mortars. mortars. I don't see any reason why we would have those kind of things, the mortars. Did your your police your better. police departments have mortars? And, they were trying to get them, especially out in the southwest. I don't know if they've got them, but they tried to get them, especially around uh, in Maricopa County in, in Arizona. They're somewhat to the right of Attila the Hun out there, and the uh, you know, these guys, uh, this uh, administration out there, they really want a whole lot of weaponry to uh, say that they can uh, outgun the bad guys, I guess, is their theory. But I can understand why we should have things like robotics. Let's send that robotic uh, dog in there to uh, look around and, instead of uh, sending in a human. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. That, uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Why don't we, we should have those kind of things available to us. But armor-piercing sh- weaponry, I don't understand the need for that. And that's what uh, was behind this whole idea, I think, of demilitarizing the police departments. Armored, armored personnel carriers. Right. There were some of those you know, that were uh, being given to uh, sheriff's departments, especially, uh, because of their uh, uh, policing in rural areas. But it, it, you know, it's hard to drive a tank down the corner of Main and Elm Street. So the, the sheriff's departments who uh, work in predominantly rural country, rural areas 
were uh, getting those things. And again, I don't understand the need for that kind of thing. Uh, well, can, you feel that it, there's a there's a medium, a, 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 a happy medium, because I remember as a kid, you taking me in the uh, conf, I don't know what you call it, weapon for the in the police department, but the weapons locker, armory. The, the the well, it wasn't the armory; it was the confiscation part. Oh yes, yes. And you showed me an RPG and an Uzi. Yeah. So I mean, if they got rocket propelled grenades on the streets. Okay, and Uzi submachine guns, mm -hmm. which obviously isn't an Australian problem right now. I can see right. the benefit of having a, you know, and this is in the 80s when it was worse. Obviously, I don't think there's a problem with having an eight, uh, like an armored personnel carrier for somebody like Derek that's going into a. Right. Those things, we should have those things. You know, hostage negotiation, that kind of thing. Yeah, we should have those things for uh, what we call SWAT here, special weapons and mm -hmm. tactics, or uh, special response teams. Yeah, those things should be available, but uh, they were just giving them out to the rank and file. And, you know, officer-friendly would jump into one of these uh, APCs and go make a traffic stop or something. You know, this that was, uh, they, were being, they were being misused, put it that way. They were being mm. misused. Well, it's just like um, in the service, you know, when you get a new, when they get a new toy, they want to use it. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's that's the way it is. You know, they're like, oh, look at the cool new gear. Even if you know, they're. I mean, yeah, I can see how it would get abused. But anyway, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. At Elders Insurance Adelaide East, our mission is to provide outstanding service and superior coverage to each and every one of our clients. With over 30 years of experience, we treat every client with mutual respect and understanding. We'll listen carefully to your specific needs and requirements in order to develop insurance solutions with a level of service and coverage you can't find anywhere else. Elders Insurance Adelaide East is a family-owned and run business with a Italian tradition which is built on honesty, integrity and trust. Make an appointment today and go and see Tony and the team at Elders Insurance Adelaide East, 54 to 56 Kensington Road, Rose Park or telephone 8364 9477. We're an authorised representative of Elders Insurance, underwriting agency, proprietary limited, Elders Insurance, underwritten by QBE Insurance, Australia Limited. Have you heard of podcasts? Podcasts are like having a personal radio station that people can listen to on demand about topics they are interested in. And now thanks to Podcast City, you can record your own podcast and have your own on-demand radio show. You can use our professional recording equipment at the studios of Radio Italia Uno or Podcast City can come to your location with our mobile studio. Podcast City can just record your audio or work with you to plan, record, edit, and distribute your podcast to your audience. If you would like to find out more and receive a free podcast startup checklist, or book a time to record your podcast, call Radio Italia Uno on 8212317 or go to podcastcity.com.au. Podcast City, podcasting the easy way. Hello, I'm Peter Salerno. Please join me on Happy Business Radio every Monday, 2 to 3 p.m. on Radio Italia Uno. We have lots of fun with very interesting guests. 
we talk about how to start, build and increase your business. Happy Business Radio on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Vuoi promuovere la tua attività? Vuoi aumentare il tuo volume di affari? Non sai a chi rivolgerti? Chiama Radio Italia 1. Il nostro staff commerciale è a disposizione per ogni informazione o preventivo personalizzato. Chiama all'82 123177. Radio Italia 1. E anche tu sarai un numero 1. Radio Italia 1. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hi, and welcome back to Change the World with Matt McQuinley. In the little bit of time I have left here today, I'd, I'd like to just thank Derek McManus for being here. Uh, Derek, of course, was a 42-year veteran of the South Australian Police Department and a member of the Elite Star Group. And he also, now that he's retired, He is a, runs a business called the Human Durability Institute, and you can utilize his services both as a public speaker and as a trainer uh, by accessing his website, which is www.derrickdericmcmanus.com.au. Matt, I'd just like to thank you for inviting me into uh, this podcast with you. I'm looking forward to doing the bonus one as well, but it's been a real pleasure to have a deeper discussion, certainly with an international contact uh, as well, and it's been fascinating for me. So I really appreciate the inclusion in your uh, discussions. The pleasure's been all mine. Thank you again. I look forward to talking soon. I also want to thank Sergeant McQuinley from the Aurora Police Department, suburb of Chicago, for being here and his keen insights. Matt, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to come on the air with you and discuss some of these issues are, are at the forefront of uh, all of our minds as we uh, try to fumble our way through this thing we call life and uh, answer some of these questions or at least uh, provide some thought, food for thought for these uh, questions. And hopefully we can, uh, as a the society, get together and have some sort of a semblance of an answer for some of these issues where we can all meet on some sort of a common ground. I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and I've certainly enjoyed it and look forward to any other uh, airings in the future. Thank you. Pleasure's all ours. Thank you very much. I want to reiterate the reason why we talk so much about the United States is because we've done a great job of keeping the virus of COVID off the Australian shores, and we want to make sure that this virus of defund the police, this narrative that all police are these evil jackbooted thugs who wake up in the morning whistling, hoping they can beat up somebody or if they get even luckier, shoot somebody, is a narrative that is not the reality. But the reality is that 99% or more of all police officers are people with good hearts that want to help out society. And they want the same things we want, safety and security, an opportunity for our family. And the negative press they received, if you think about it, 99.9% of the time, police interactions go well. Of course, 0.1% is still too much. But if you think about in the United States, for example, where there are 10 million interactions each year with the police, and less than 25 of them resulted in an unarmed suspect dying in custody, shows us that the majority of police are trying their best to do the right thing. And of course, we need to have a zero tolerance policy. We need to focus on 
perfection, but we're getting pretty close. Our next episode will be on domestic violence. Hopefully you'll join for us for that. If you missed the other two episodes on this series on policing, please listen to our podcast, which is Change the World with Matt McQuinley, spelled M-A-T-T-M-C-Q-U-I-N-L-E-Y, on wherever you hear podcasts. And if you'd like to contact me, I'm a coach and public speaker as well. You can do that through Facebook and at Matt, M-A-T-T, at greennightcoaching.com.au. That's Matt at greennightcoaching.com.au. Thanks again. And as always, I will leave you with a short inspirational story. Hi, I'm Matt McQuinley. Today, I want to talk to you about the positive power of adversity. On a cold winter morning in Elkhart, Kansas, in 1917, two boys, eight-year-old Glenn Cunningham and his 13-year-old brother Floyd, were walking to school early. You see, their job was to get the one-room schoolhouse ready for their classmates by starting a fire early in the morning in the big pot-bellied stove that they had in the center of the room. To do this, they often poured kerosene on the wood to get it started. Unfortunately, someone the previous day had switched out the kerosene for gasoline or petrol instead. Once they lit the fire, there was a big whoosh, and both of the boys caught fire and ran outside in a panic. A farmer just happened to be riding by on his horse and wagon and jumped off his wagon, and because Glenn was the closer of the two boys, put him out first. Then he ran over and put the fire out on his brother. Glenn then woke up in the hospital later on and saw that all of the flesh on his knees and shins, all the tolls on his left foot were gone. Also, his transverse arch on his foot was basically destroyed. From his hospital bed, he faintly heard the doctor tell his mother that his brother Floyd had all had passed away and that it was unlikely that he would make it either. A few days later, he was still alive. The doctor was very happy but surprised that that was the case. But then Glenn overheard the doctor tell his mother that he had the start of an infection and they should amputate both his legs to save his life. Glenn heard this and begged his mother with tears in his eyes not to amputate his legs. And because his mother was so moved and knew that her son was so crushed that he'd lost his brother, she convinced the doctor to give it a few days to see if the infection cleared up, even though there was a risk. It did. Of course, after the infection cleared up, the doctor told him he'd never walk again. His parents had a regimen of massaging his legs, or what was left of them, to keep the circulation going. This, of course, was incredibly painful. One morning, Glenn's mother wheeled him out into the yard to let him get some fresh air. When she came back, she saw that he had thrown himself onto the ground and dragged crawled himself to their white picket fence and pulled himself up so he could stand. He did this every day, using the fence to drag himself along, trying to get his little leg to be able to walk again. Eventually, he wore a path out along the fence line. And then eventually, one day, he was able to stand up. Then he was able to walk haltingly with help. Then he was able to walk on his own. One day, he could kind of hop run because his legs, of course, were still mangled. At the age of 12, four years after the fire, he went back to school. And he was a bit like Forrest Gump. He never walked anywhere. He ran just because he was so glad that he could. By high school, he was on the track team. In 1932, he represented the United States in the Olympics, placing fourth. 
in the 1500 meters. In 1934, he broke the world record for the mile at four minutes, six seconds, 0.8, which stood for three years. In 1936, he returned back to the Olympics and set the world record in the 800 meters. Unfortunately, the guy that won the gold medal also set a world record, so he had to settle for a silver. In 1938, he set the world record for the indoor mile. What do we learn from Glenn Robinson's story? Well, the first thing we learn is it doesn't matter where you start out, it matters where you finish up. He was a poor boy who couldn't walk, and he lived through the Great Depression as a young man. He couldn't go to school for four years because his legs were so badly burned, and yet he broke and held multiple world records in running, competed in two different Olympic Games, and after his retirement from running, opened a ranch that helped out over 10,000 disadvantaged children. What else do we learn? Well, we also learn something that's a little bit negative, that even the greatest of us psych ourselves out. You see, back then, it was believed it was physically impossible to run a four-minute mile. They had all these scientists and doctors proving why you could not run a four-minute mile. Your heart would explode. Nobody's lung capacity was great enough. So on and so on and so on. So Glenn used to run the first half of his mile slower than he did the second half. He kept himself in reserve because he was afraid his legs would give out and he knew that it was physically impossible to run a four-minute mile. Until 1954, when Roger Bannister ran a four-minute mile, he ran three minutes, 59 seconds, point four. And within 46 days, that record was broken again. And within two years, 10 men around the world could run a four-minute, sub-four-minute mile. Today, over 500 just American men have run a four-minute mile. The third thing we learned is that adversity causes some to break, as it said, and others to break records. I know myself, I would have never, ever went to nationals and swimming if I didn't have asthma in a child and feel I had something to prove. So again, we realize there are two kinds of people listening to this radio broadcast and this podcast today. We all have challenges. We all have disappointments. There's the kind of person who will give up or be a victim. And then there's the kind of person who will look at the adversity and use it to motivate themselves to heights they might never have thought even possible. The question is, which one are you?